Welcome to the Government Technology Insider Podcast. I'm your host, Lucas Hunsaker. In this episode, we're discussing how federal government agencies are under pressure to meet the requirements of the Executive Order on Cybersecurity from May 2021. The core tenet of this EO was the implementation of a zero-trust approach to cybersecurity. While the Department of Defense and civilian agencies can buy their way to compliance with the numerous zero-trust products and solutions available on the market today, to truly implement a zero-trust approach and be able to provide the next level of protection to data and users, agencies need to move beyond compliance. In this podcast, we sat down with Hansung Bei, Chief Technologist, Public Sector at Zscaler to learn more about how agencies can build a zero-trust architecture that's fit for purpose for today's agency and tomorrow's threat environment. I hope you enjoy our conversation. So Hansung, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. My pleasure. So let's go ahead and jump into the first question. So federal government agencies are a prime target for cyber attackers for obvious reasons. What is making it more difficult for agencies to protect their data and people from attacks? Yeah, so I think the first thing that jumps to most people's mind is just the size and the bureaucracy involved. So that alone makes it, you know, with the perennial Titanic that you're trying to turn using uh, oars, right? But compounding that, I think, is you have naysayers, and I don't blame them. There have been many technologies that came around, flash in a pan, that ultimately did nothing. Software-defined networking comes to mind. So there are there is kind of this confirmation bias of, or I sometimes I say legacy bias of, hey, if it ain't broke, don't fix it, right? And there's a lot of school of hard knocks experience that says, in fact, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And the reason why that doesn't apply in this case is the concept of zero trust uh, is something that is not new but technology was unable to deliver on the promise from, what, 15 years ago that Jericho Forum started, which is perimeters don't work, let's do something else, let's try something else. And it took 15 years, almost two decades, for technology to finally say, hey, we have a workable, scalable solution that allows security to follow the user, and the user's traffic don't have to go through a set of appliances to be protected, right? So that's a tectonic shift, a mind shift in um, cyber. And especially for the federal government, because uh, let's talk about DOD, for example. You know, there's a nipper, there's sipper, there are, you know, enclaves where the perimeter still is kind of dependent on to protect that traffic. So that mindset of, you know, going back 15, 20, 30 years. It takes some time to change uh, to get buy-in. So those are some high-level things that maybe we can even get deeper into, but that those are the things that come to mind. Yeah, absolutely. That was excellent. So my next question is that the May 2021 executive order on cybersecurity made Zero Trust the gold standard for cyber protection. Um, perhaps could you elaborate on why it is the gold standard and then talk about how it differs from traditional approaches to cybersecurity? Yeah, yeah. So I think the, um, 
so number one, uh, let's you know kind of set the stage for everybody. No such thing as zero trust. Uh, it doesn't exist. If someone is hell-bent on doing you harm, they will, and no one in the world can stop it. But the goal isn't to be 100% effective because, like I said, zero trust is a great tagline. It's a great marketing term. It's a great concept. People intuitively understand zero trust, but it can't be achieved. So why are we talking about it? Because you're trying to approach zero trust. In other words, you're trying to reduce that blast radius of when you get compromised to as small a surface area as possible. And the thing that has been kind of the perennial pain point for a lot of technologists is the end user, right? You know, sometimes in a, uh, in a setting, I might, you know, I kind of lean on the joke of, you know, God created the heavens and earth in seven days because there was no install base to worry about, right? In infrastructure, in technology, you're asking people to do heart transplant while the patient is running a marathon because the network doesn't stop. So when was the last time that the federal government uh, turned off the network so they could do an upgrade? When was the last time that the entire data center had to be turned off to do maintenance? Never, right? Um, so this brownfield scenario of I have a set of technologies, I now need to incorporate zero trust, um, makes it difficult to um, for people to get excited about, right? So why is it the gold standard? Why, is, why do we have an executive order? Why do we have four or five different architectural diagrams? And, you know, DISA has uh, architecture, uh, DOD has an architecture, CISA has a maturity model, NIST. So everybody has a view on what zero trust is. And simply put, zero trust says, you don't use the network as a security blanket anymore. It's a fundamental least privilege. It's not a one and done gates that we've gone through. So for example, uh, today you log into your machine, you put in your password and that's it. You can do whatever, whenever, and however uh, you want to attack the network, right? Because you were one and done. You're checked once, you're let into the, uh, the gate, and you can run around amok and do crazy things. And I don't mean that from a malicious user. I'm talking about the unintended malicious user. I don't know that my machine's compromised. So when I come to work, DOD, State Department, Department of Justice, Homeland, et cetera, the malware wakes up and goes to town, right? And so we have empirical evidence. Network is no longer the security blanket. It's a ubiquitous fabric that connects everything so zero trust, the true zero trust says, okay, let's take the security business out of the network and let's protect the user. Let's protect the end device. Let's protect the application and the data, but let's start with the identity provider that we do a continuous check on. So there is no more one and done and you're good to go. You're being constantly evaluated to see if I should take privileges away from you dynamically, right? Whether it's uh, unusual behavior, accessing things that you shouldn't be accessing, et cetera. So this idea of zero trust is, again, least privilege, right? To get your job done, continuous monitoring, has no dependency on the network to enforce it, 
Because if you're expecting protection because the traffic is routed through a literal stack of appliances, you're done for, okay? Because those stacks can be avoided. And it's not like you can ship a pallet of your hardware into the cloud as you adopt more and more cloud workflow, right? So what Zero Trust brings to the table uh, is that it is location independent, okay? And that's important. Location, physical location, and network location independent protection. And it's kind of think of it as angel on the shoulder that says, oh, no, no, you don't want to do that. Um, why don't we do this instead? Or, hey, hold on a second. Something looks fishy. Let's quarantine you until we sort this out. And that has to be location and network independent. Uh, and this is why Zero Trust new concept, um, a new execution of an old concept, I should say, and why it's the gold standard, because it's what everybody wanted, right? That kind of somebody to watch over me, to protect me, and also guide me. Uh, and that's what Zero Trust brings to the table. Why is this change important as agencies continue their digital transformation journeys? Recently, we saw that there was a hack that went on for a while in a protected, seemingly protected uh, cloud environment, right? And the whole idea here, so tagline that I use to kind of set this foundation of what it is that we're trying to fix, the problem statement, is if you're reachable, you are breachable, okay? And so now we have a conundrum. Well, I'm supposed to reach my application to use it, but in doing that, if I'm compromised, I can now try and reach all these other applications that I shouldn't even have access to, but guess what? I'm either using legacy VPN or I'm inside the network and I can reach all these servers. So imagine, and you don't have to imagine this, we just went through it with log4j, what we call a zero day vulnerability where no one saw it coming and it's devastating. Now the problem you have is you have all these users who can reach all this infrastructure and servers. Okay, so again, think about this. If you're reachable, you are breachable. And what Zero Trust says is, okay, hold on a second. I'm not giving you access to the network. You're using the network, but at my discretion, my Zero Trust discretion. What I'm doing essentially is a good analogy is I'm building an HOV tunnel into your car garage. Okay, no one knows what car you have. No one knows uh, what color it is because I built my HOV lane into the garage. You come in, come out from your house, go into your garage, get in your car, get into that HOV tunnel, and then I escort you to that application. Again, all the way through a bespoke HOV lane that's per user, per app. So the network here, the analogy of the network is all the roads, right? So of course those packets have to go somewhere. So you're still using the roadways, the, you know, the freeways and the highways and the tollways and, and parkways, et cetera, depending on what part of the country you live in. But it's independent because you have this HOV lane that transports you from your garage all the way to that application. Okay. And so by giving you that bespoke HOV lane, even if you are compromised, the blast radius is only that application that you have access to and not the 8,000 application that justice might be running today. 
right? So this is kind of the the fundamental reason why zero trust is different and why the adoption has to happen sooner rather than later. Now, what about a zero trust exchange? How, how does this approach improve agency cybersecurity? Okay, yeah, so that's a great question. So follow on question. So a good analogy is this, right? For those of you that worked at large enterprises or at the government, certainly DOD, is that you don't get to show up to a meeting and go up to 42nd floor and run around the office. What happens? You go to a lobby, someone checks your ID, that's the identity provider, okay? And says, oh, okay, I see you have an appointment with so-and-so. Let me call up to that person. And that person either sends a representative or comes down to escort you all the way to that conference room, okay? But in a world of zero trust, what happens is that zero trust exchange is the old timey phone operator that either, you know, depending on your age, you've experienced this firsthand, or you've seen pictures of operators physically connecting those phone call so you can make that happen, right? When you go to a lobby of a building, you check in with a desk, that's the operator concept. So zero trust exchange is there to ensure that you've been vetted before I call up to the application and say, hey, application, I have a customer here for you. Come and meet him in the lobby, right? Now, we can all, I think, intuitively understand the picture that I'm painting. You're sitting in the lobby. That's the zero trust exchange. And someone comes to get you. You don't get to go to the server, right? Now, why is that so important? Because I just said, if you're reachable, you're breachable. So how do you stop that? Well, you make the application not reachable because you're not actually reaching and going all the way to that room. Someone is escorting you, putting the blindfolds on you, taking you to that room so you can do your work. And then when you're ready to leave, I again, put the blindfolds on you, escort you back down and you got your work done, but you had no idea what conference room you were in. You have no idea what floor you went to. You have no idea uh, the makeup of the building, how many people, et cetera, right? So, and we can, you do this at scale for every transaction, every application, and you have a trusted party in the middle to broker that, okay? Another way to think about this is, you know, from a zero trust continuum, it's not a product, by the way, folks, there is no vendor that comes and says, hey, I have the entire gamut of A to Z of zero trust for you by me. It's a turnkey zero trust solution. Kick them out because they're lying. Okay. And I know that because I'm in the business and there is no one vendor that does it all. Identity, endpoint detection, uh, CASB, zero trust, SWIG, the list goes on and on and on, right? Uh, including logging, by the way. So think about the zero trust exchange as that broker who enforces the policy decisions and also brokers the connection to say, hey, you're a no-go at this station, uh, but you, on the other hand, this person next to you, you can go, but in a limited way. I'm going to give you a read-only access because I haven't finished vetting you out. Um, so there's different levels of go, no-go. Uh, and this is another thing that people have to realize is that 
unlike a firewall, which is a layer three device, ports and protocols, it's a go, no go. There's no granularity, it's black and white. You can either go through the firewall or I'm stopping you at the firewall. Whereas with the Zero Trust Exchange, you have a little more intelligence and nuance. I'll let you go, but I'm going to give you a browser isolated read-only mode because I don't know that know you that well yet. Or I might give you full access, or I may stop you, or I may quarantine you. So you have more granular control as opposed to go no go. Okay. And and that takes a zero trust exchange, that brokerage in the middle that that is there to ensure. So think of again, going back to my old analogy, a giant lobby where everybody comes to be connected to their application. Now Hansung, what do you think of artificial intelligence on the future of zero trust and cybersecurity as a whole? Yeah, uh, stand by for 30 seconds. I'm going to ask ChatGPT that question, see what it says. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, so artificial intelligence has been used uh, for quite a while in different verticals, right? Uh, what's interesting is that Artificial intelligence, for the most part, was kind of Bayesian analysis. Uh, and if you, those of you that took uh, college math courses may understand from Bayesian analysis, it's what word comes next, right? So, so I have after this word, typically um, this word seems to come up after that, and you keep doing that to string along. But in the past, we weren't very, the computers weren't very good at it. So what changed was that from a machine learning perspective, there's a lot of data to go through uh, to collect at, at the word patterns, et cetera, right? I'll give you a, a perfect example. For those of you that remember, Google had a, you know, kind of a white pages or yellow pages service for a while. This was, those of you know, you know, you know, but there was the 800 number that you could call and say, hey, uh, I'm looking for this plumbing store. What's the phone number? And the Google bot would tell you, oh, I think this is your phone, uh, the store you're looking for. And here's the phone number. So why did Google do that? Because they wanted to get as many people's voices imprinted so they can understand human speech pattern, right? And the best way to do that was having people call in to look for a phone number, clearly before smartphone time. Um, because now we can do that on our own, right? And congratulations to some of you who are Seinfeld episodes that immediately went to Kramer faking the movie tone. What movie would you like to see? Why don't you just tell me what movie you want to see episode? But be that as it may, the idea here is that with the entirety of the internet, there is every possible information that's ever been written that's been uploaded at disposal to train. And you run through that billions and trillions of times um, and the Bayesian analysis got better and better and better to a point where now uh, it's so good that it's indistinguishable from human, right? So we finally have the two things that that always challenge computer science. One is the uncanny valley. As a picture, it gets more and more human-like. People kind of creeped out because there's something a little bit wrong. We're very in tune to figure out facial recognition. So when it's something slightly artificial picture, people go, eh, it's, I know it's fake, right? Mannequins, um, the more lifelike you got, more uncomfortable people got. That was the uncanny valley. Well, we crossed that. We jumped the shark on that one because we now have pictures that are 
no one can in distinguish between artificial and real pictures. That's one. Number two was the Turing test. When you chat with something, you immediately know that it's not human, right? The phraseology is slightly wrong, doesn't understand idioms, etc. And now we have uh, case after case after case of people having real conversation with computers. So yes, artificial intelligence is getting better. And when quantum computing comes into the foray to mainstream, that's probably when the end of the world happens. But as of right now, artificial intelligence is still a tool that companies like Zscaler uses to look for unusual behavior, unusual activity. Uh, and it's just basically uh, understanding the iteration of what people do at scale so that you can pick these things out. But um, yeah, artificial intelligence is something to look out for, but I don't know that it's all roses because there is a lot of harm that can come from misuse of AI. And I'll give you one tactical example. And this actually keeps me awake. So when we get a phishing attack, right? There's always something we know. So most people who are, I'm not talking about your grandma. Um, I'm talking about normal people who are tech savvy, work in the industry. You can immediately spot a phishing attempt, right? The first two are, you know, um, hello, dear. That's, that's not a thing that we in America use. In Asia, it's very common. In America, it's not. So we know, okay, this is phishing, delete. Imagine, and I say this, that if malware writers hire a native English speaker to write that phishing mail, their efficacy go, would go up to 1,000, 3,000%, okay? And now they have that native English speaker because uh, AI is good enough that it can mimic a human so it can write those phishing letters that are very compelling that tugs at the curiosity of every person to want to go, oh, this is interesting. This looks like it's a real thing. Let me click on it, right? So that's some of the downsides of AI. There's obviously good upsides to it, but I think it's too soon to call heads or tails on that one. Yeah, absolutely. There is a, a large difference in terms of the size of the coin of positive and negative for it. I like there's certainly things that keep me up about it as well. All right. So before we wrap up, do you have any final insights or advice you'd like to share with the audience? Yeah, I think um, two. One, unfortunately, it's hard to know what you're going to trust. So, and again, here's the oxymoron, right? Or the irony of it. You're trying to roll out zero trust, but if truth be told, if you're honest, you don't know what the hell is out there. The network is a sprawling, almost a living thing that has application dependencies that no one remembers because it's that team has gone, has turned over. So applications sprawled, users sprawled everywhere, and they have connectivity because the infrastructure allows that seamless, frictionless connection. So the first challenge of Zero Trust is what the hell do I have out there? Okay, so your job one is to discover at scale. And we do that, Zero Trust, you know, Zscaler, Zero Trust Exchange, one of the functions is to sit back and watch and go, and 
actually uses AI <laughs> and ML um, both to say, hey, these 18 applications seem to be firing up at the same time. They must be related. Why don't we group them for you uh, so you can write policies based on? So that's one, right? This, just knowing what you have, uh, what you're working with, that's hard to do because the size of the network and the user count, et cetera. Number two is you're out of time. The near peer adversaries, they get a vote in this contested cyberspace. It's the only place where uh, enemy gets a vote. Okay, so you're out of time. We've seen these spectacular hacks. We've seen these spectacular and the enemy is evolving. They are no longer locking machines, for example. They're just exfilling the data so they don't draw too much attention a la Colonial Pipeline. Right. So steal the intellectual property, let people continue to work and just threaten them by saying, I'll release it if you don't pay me so they can fly under the radar. So you're out of time. You need to get on that zero trust train and start deploying it because the right zero trust solution isn't arduous to deploy because it you don't have to make infrastructure changes. The right zero trust solution doesn't require you to change your BGP routing, doesn't require you to deploy things and recable things and modify your infrastructure to implement that zero trust. It's frictionless to use, but because it's frictionless to use, it means that it's frictionless to deploy. It's easier to deploy, right? So that's my guidance. One, do the discovery. We can help, but find out what's out there, what you're really dealing with. And number two, get going, we're out of time. Thank you, Hansong, for joining us today and a big thank you to our listeners for tuning in. If you're interested in staying up to date on the latest best practices, lessons learned, and proven strategies for leveraging innovative technologies in the government tech sphere, visit governmenttechnologyinsider.com. I've been your host, Lucas Hunsaker, and until next time, so long.